Bruin. Uh, I'm the campus minister for Reform University Fellowship, otherwise known as RUF. Let me tell you a little bit about RUF. RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the introvert and the extrovert, for the Republican National Convention addict, and the Democratic National Convention supporter. And for those who are already and for those who are already cynical and bored with politics and the president, or future president for that matter. Or if exists for those of you who are cynical and bored with the church, and for those of you who are very pro-church, you have a pro-church platform, and your supporters of Jesus. In other words, like whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks so much for coming. Uh, I hope you feel welcome. Uh, we at RUF would love to get to know you, and we hope that you get to know RUF. If you've been around RUF for a while, please take the time to introduce yourself to somebody new. Maybe that person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you. Uh, don't do it now, but afterwards, that would be great. Uh, maybe hang out with somebody who you've never sat next to at Village Inn afterwards. If you're new to RUF, it takes a lot of courage to come. I really appreciate that. Um, we don't take that lightly. Uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, we hope that um, you feel welcome and that you get, if you want to get more plugged in, you find ways of doing that. Uh, speaking of which, look at that perfect segue. Um, do we have a sign-up for RUF uh, somewhere? So we're passing around a sign-up with, with an extra little wrinkle. Isn't that on there? J-Lo, talk yeah, to me. It's on there. It's on there. Uh, we, we're actually rechartering as an organization. So if you want to be a part of RUF, uh, I guess NMSU official, so go ahead and sign up for the recharter. They're going to ask you a bunch of semi-invasive questions, um, but that's what you need to recharter. If you're not interested, that's okay. Okay, it's not a make or break or break thing. We just kind of, if you're interested, we've been putting down like ten people. And that's clearly not how many people we've already asked. So we're just trying to be a little bit more honest and accountable on that. So if you're interested, sign up, and that'd be great. Um, also, if you just want to put your email down, uh, that's a great way to get more connected and uh, involved with our. Finally, another final digital sign-up thing. You can do NMSU RUF on Facebook if you'd uh, like to take this virtual relationship to the next level. Um, you can do that. So it's a good way to get informed. All right, t-shirts. We talked about this. I mean, this is worth every cent of $12. I mean, have you seen the thread count on this? <laughs> it's practically velvet. Just say it. Just, yeah, see, Lydia's feeling it. She knows, you know? Just walk around like velvet. Okay, so also take a look at your bulletin. There's a few things there that I'd like to highlight. Maybe, maybe if you haven't gone to a small group, maybe check out a small group if you're interested. Uh, we started up that new one for those of you who have conflicts at night on Thursdays. They're going to go over the passages, not just the sermon that we're talking about. Uh, so, for instance, for this week when we talk about John 4 and Stuart and whoever else comes, we'll be talking about that as well. Um, you don't have to come to this to go to that, and vice versa, I guess. So, um, I hope that helps. And finally, it's not too late to start to, to join a study that's already in progress. No one's become blood brothers or blood sisters yet. Yet. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. That's, kind of, that's terrible, isn't it? We just, you know, we just said the blood drive, that's just too useful. So, anyway... Um, Finally, NMSC, if you're new to NMSU or you're new to RUF, uh, we're inviting
invite you over for dinner. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put out a feast for you. It's free. We're going to play some games. It'll be a good time. Uh, but let me correct a typo in the bulletin. Um, I don't actually have a permanent address as a person, so you're not going to meet Matt Sid Drew, and you're going to be at my house. That's <laughs> the typo there. Uh, and really, like, I know, this is amazing. <laughs> like, I walk around and my address, like, Google Maps is like, this guy's crazy. <laughs> I like the pack of them. Let's see about Apple already does that for me with my iPhone. But, anyway, stalking. Um, so, it's 3041 Missouri, it's 630. Uh, if you need a ride, there'll be rides available in the parking lot for the Corbett. Uh, I mean, it's 615. And then, also, if you need directions, uh, find somebody with a smartphone, get an internet connection. You can do it, I believe in you, it's the digital age. Uh, but if you really need directions, if you're that kind of person, you need me to draw you a map, I'm more than happy to do that, too. Okay? I'm more like that person. We talked about that last week. Okay. Um, so this semester at large, people we're doing here, we're talking through the statements of Jesus where he says, I am blank. Okay? The I am statements of Jesus. And we're looking at this, uh, these passages in the Bible, mostly in the Gospel of John, in order to see uh, where Jesus describes who he is to those people following him around the Middle East 2,000 years ago, and for us reading the Bible in the present day. So, Jesus says things like this all the time. I am a good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life, and so on. And so we're going to look at those individual passages to give us some context, and also the individual statements within those passages. Therefore, the working title of our study goes something like this. I am defines who I am. I get that it gets less clever every week. I get that. Okay. We'll talk about it more next week. Okay. Um, what that means, though, what, I, what I'm trying to get at with that title is that knowing Jesus transforms our self-understanding, understanding who we are, um, but it also transforms our whole person, not just our minds, okay? our hearts, our hands, our feet, everything about us. Uh, that's the contention. And I really want us actually to try and let Jesus define us instead of us defining Jesus. Our default mode is us defining Jesus, but I'd like to actually reverse that and let Jesus define himself and in the process define us. Here's what I mean, okay? I think this just makes sense. You don't want other people defining you, right? You don't want your mom's word on you to be the last word about who you are, okay? You don't want to walk into a room and have a friend go, here's that person, okay? That's why everyone gets frustrated when there's somebody's little brother or little sister, okay? Because they're being defined by somebody else. And so what we're trying to say is, if, we're get, if we want that chance for ourselves, why don't we give Jesus that chance for him, himself? At least that's what an Eminem song called The Way I Am talks about. <laughs> but before I go there with Eminem, I'm going to take a moment. Okay, we need a moment to settle ourselves. Okay? I fully and completely understand that I'm 32 years old, that I'm balding, that I proudly drive a minivan from what must be considered the suburbs of Las Cruces. Okay? And so I have to ask you, do I have permission? Does this disqualify me from quoting a rapper? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Maybe. But I'm going to do it anyway. Okay? I feel like Eminem's white. I can, I can get away with this, can't I? All right. I grew up in the Midwest, too. All right. In his song, The Way I Am, Eminem complains about random fans in the media trying to define him. And 
try to put him in some sort of easy celebrity category. And so he sarcastically raps the following. I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, then why would you say I am? In the paper, the news every day I am. I don't know. It's just the way I am. It's what I am, by the way. I think the problem that, um, that with other people thinking or other people thinking who you are or defining who you are isn't just our problem with our parents or our older siblings. It's not just Eminem's problem with tabloid journalists, which is a lot of what the song's about. I think it's Jesus' problem, first and foremost. And it's his problem with well-meaning believers, seekers, and skeptics. So, wherever you are with Jesus tonight, and I'm, I'm guessing there's a bunch of you in a bunch of different places, let's take a close look at ourselves and let's look for ourselves at what millions of people for thousands of years have taken to be Jesus' words. Okay. Before we look at the passage tonight, which by the way, if you have a Bible, you can flip to John chapter 4. If you don't, just flip the inside of your bulletin. Or if you just don't want to open your Bible, it's totally fine. Just flip to the inside of the bulletin as well. The green paper. Um, before we head there, I'd like to talk about where we've been. Two weeks ago, we looked at the book of Exodus and the passage where God defines himself, he names himself, calls himself out to Moses. And what does he say? He says, I am Yahweh. Okay, my name is Yahweh. Which in the Hebrew, it's a Hebrew translation in the English would be, I am. So basically what that means is when Jesus is saying, I am something, I am the light of the world, he's not just saying, he's not just being kind of poetic. He's saying, I am God who is like the light of the world. And, and people who are familiar with the Old Testament would have, would have realized that. And as we get more familiar, we'll realize that more. And then last week, we looked at John the Baptist's confession. Okay, we looked at the beginning, at, his, at, the, at John the Baptist's uh, beginning of the Gospel of John, where he confesses that he is not the Christ, and that he declares and beholds that that's the Lamb of the, Lamb of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Alright, so... We have to understand what John confesses and what he beholds in order for us to properly take in who Jesus is. Okay? Those are my two kind of premises that I'm going to kind of run with for the rest of the semester. So actually, we're going to kind of, from this week onward, we're going to plow through the Gospel of John with the I Am statements. But I just kind of want us to keep in the back of our mind some of the introductions. And for some of you, that was recap. Some of you, that was brand new, even though you were here. Some of you, it's brand new uh, because this is your first time. So I hope that it meets you where you are. So tonight we're going to watch a scene unfold where Jesus confesses, not like John the Baptist, he says, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And so we're going to take a look at what that looks like in the, in the Gospel of John. That Jesus is the Christ. That is the Greek translation of Messiah. Messiah, okay? So would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4, verses 3 through 30. That's what we're going to look at. It's a pretty big chunk. As you can see, uh, I want to apologize again, another bulletin thing. We uh, cut off some of the letters in the end of it, so like it's going to be like a little bit like Mad Libs. You have to kind of figure out what the rest of the word is. Um, it'll be exciting. So, uh, could you stand for reading scripture? Okay, John chapter four, verses three through thirty. So we're looking at. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria, and so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, 
was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which, by the way, is noon. A woman from the Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask, a dr- ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Classic, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> our, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. By the way, this is a great theological diversion. And Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I will speak to you, and he, that is, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, that is the Messiah? They went out of the town, and they were coming to him. Friends, these are the words of God. They're more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they're sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we ask for you to be here. We ask for you to, to fill us uh, in this space with your Holy Spirit, to give us ears to hear, uh, minds eager to listen. Uh, give us um, a sense of rest and peace as we come in from a restless day. I pray, Father, that this would be a time of sitting at your feet and gazing at wonder. I, praise, Father, I pray, Father, that you would help us to praise you, that your Spirit would fill us and move us challenge us where we need to be challenged and comfort us where we need to be comforted. I ask these things, knowing full well that you care about your people, you care about your word, and you care about the people in this room. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, you see seated. So, before um, in the middle of my long introduction about the passage, I mentioned that I drive a minivan. There's, a, there's really one reason I'm driving a minivan. Um, I have three children under the age of three. And although I think the Honda Odyssey should deserve, deserve style points, 
in every direction. I actually think that the minivan is a gift from God for tired, barely making it parents who want safe, happy children. Have you seen the inside of a minivan? It's convenience galore. Okay? Just saying, like, ours even has fold down DVD players, wireless headsets. It's crazy. What are they doing? It's in a minivan. Anyway, my point is actually that the oldest of my children are uh, twins, and they're about to turn two years old. And this is like a really amazing age for those of you who have experienced that. Uh, if you don't have nieces or nephews, um, two-year-olds are like really trying to find, they're finally able to talk about how they're understanding the world. And they're taking words, and they're putting them together, they're making phrases. And one of the most amazing things that my twins, William and Carol, say on a consistent basis, they say it actually a lot, is the word broken. They say broken. They bring me a toy that won't light up. They bring me a jar that won't open. They bring me a book with a page ripped out of it, and they say one word, broken. You see, broken is not just a description of the toy or the book. Broken is a request that their father, me, that I fix the book, or that I fix the toy. To make it work like it's supposed to. To heal it. To make it whole again. And some things just require new batteries or scotch tape to repair to wholeness. And other things are well beyond my ability to fix. And that's when my children get really, really sad and their lips start to quiver and their eyes fill with tears and they start bawling. And on my good days, I hug my children give them a kiss. But on most days, I try to distract them. I probably don't need to say this, but two-year-olds are not just the only people saying broken. Broken is not just a description of reality that a two-year-old says. Broken is not just a request that a two-year-old heart makes. Clearly, this passage about the Samaritan women is filled with hard talk about brokenness. And there's brokenness outside of her in society, and there's brokenness within her. Uh, she struggles with a thirst that she can't quench. And it's a kind of brokenness that new batteries and scotch tape, or deep breathing exercises, or distractions can't ultimately fix. It's a social, emotional, spiritual shattering that requires a healer. A healer who knows intimately who we are and what's at stake. A Messiah. A Christ named Jesus of Nazareth. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 3 through 30, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well, and he tells all of us reading along here tonight, Jesus tells us all one simple thing. I am the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. And this means that he is in the business of fixing what is broken outside and inside of us. Because only Jesus knows intimately who we are and what's at stake. And this is what the whole passage is really about. Jesus is the Messiah, and we get healed when we let him cross over cultural boundaries. And we get healed when we bring him our wounds. Okay? The whole passage is really that simple. 
Jesus is the Messiah, and we get healed when we let him cross over cultural boundaries, and when we bring him our wounds. I think we see this in the story of the woman at the well, a, a story about a broken world and a broken girl in that world. Pretty clearly in two stages. First, verses 1 through 9, we see that Jesus is crossing over cultural battle lines. Okay? He invites us to go where he goes, over there, over to them, in his name. Secondly, in verses 10 through 30, we see Jesus heal the wounds of a woman. And he invites us to take our deepest, our most private wounds to him. In short, verses 1 through 9 stretch us to cross cultural barbed wire. And verses 10 through 30 move us to share our shame with Jesus. Let's start by looking at Jesus crossing over cultural barbed wire in verses 1 through 9. So if you've got your passage, look there with me, if you would. Okay? A quick scan of these opening verses, these first eight verses, hint at what Jesus is doing. He's crossing cultural lines in the sand. Do we see this? The lines that separate races, Jew versus Samaritan. Samaritans, by the way, are Jews who are mixed with other races. He's crossed, these are lines that separate religions. The Jewish Bible, that is the whole Old Testament that we have in this Bible, and, and the temple that's located in Jerusalem on the hill of Zion. All versus the Samaritan Bible, which is really just the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis through Deuteronomy. And a temple location that's different. Not Jerusalem, but not Gerizim. And these boundaries separate genders, male and female. And these boundaries separate morality. We've got a sinless Jesus with a sinful woman and a well. And finally, there are no trespass lines all across separate socioeconomic statuses. This important teacher, Jesus, who gets people in the middle of the night who are very important calling on him in John chapter 3, that same person is meeting with a poor and outcast woman. So what is Jesus doing at the Samaritan well in the heat of the day, alone with this woman, crossing all sorts of, of social barricades? He's, by the way, he's not just talking to her, he's asking to drink after her. Which I don't have to go into sort of unclean and clean laws that Jesus was breaking there. But rather I just have to understand this. Jesus is committing an act of civil disobedience for his culture. Do you get that? Look at the, I want you to think about it historically for a second. Think about Martin Luther King Jr., leading a boycott in the segregation of the South in the 1960s. That's what Jesus is doing. Think about Nelson Mandela in the 1980s in apartheid South Africa, leading a protest. That's what Jesus is doing in these verses. But maybe that's not, maybe not your historian. And so I really racked my brain to find the best analogy of what this would look like in the present day. Okay, I really thought a lot about this. Um, what does it look like to to cross over cultural barriers, those things that separate people intentionally, that other people erect to say, I'm different than you. What does that look like in our day? And let's be honest, we live in a day of political correctness, so those barriers are a little bit less visible, right? My best analogy is that Jesus is sitting in the coach section of an airplane, and he storms up to first class, and he brushes by the angry flight attendants, and he decides that he's going to use the first class bathroom, and he's going to use as many moist towelettes as he wants to. 
gosh darn it. <laughs> or maybe actually it's more like Jesus is storms down from first class into the coach section, and he uses the coach bathroom, and he pays for headphones. Maybe that's what this is all about. But whatever the analogy we use, this scene begs a few questions for all of us. Why is Jesus practicing this kind of civil, civil disobedience? Why are folks like the gospel writer John making such a big deal about this? I mean, just think about, or even the woman at the well, just think about verse 9, okay? Where you have not only the woman at the well making a big deal of it, but then in the parentheses, John the gospel writer makes a big deal about it. Like, underlining how weird this is and how crazy this is that Jesus is doing it. Why is this going on? I think the answer is lie in verse 4 of our passage. Let me read that for you again. It's actually very short and very subtle. And he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Why in the Greek is it necessary for Jesus to pass through Samaria? What's going on there? Look, plenty of other Jews took the long view, the scenic route around Samaria, so they didn't have to sort associate with a different race and religion, all the other things that we, we drew lines in the sand about. Okay? And those were people on business, those were people in a hurry, they had the briefcase, the overcoat, they were on a mission. Okay? And Jesus, let's be frank, has plenty of time. He's walking around doing some teaching. Okay? Some, he can pretty much conjure up food whenever he wants. It's not that hard. Okay, he doesn't have sort of an agenda. So I imagine that his detour through Samaria was not for the sake of efficiency. He's not a time-sensitive person, according to all of our understanding. So the force and necessity about Jesus going through Samaria, going the Samaritan route, is not a matter of convenience. It's because Jesus is on a mission to save the world. People in every tribe, people in every tongue, people, and every nation. Think back about John the Baptist's confession just a chapter or two ago. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Jews? No, the world. And let's be honest, and let's be frank, Samaria is certainly part of the world. This fits into Jesus' agenda, his salvation agenda. And let me repeat a point that I made in passing last week that I think is really helpful and important to hear again. That what the Bible calls sin does not know racial or cultural boundaries. What the Bible calls sin does not know racial or cultural boundaries. And thankfully, what the Bible calls salvation also does not know racial or cultural boundaries. That's actually what's going on in this passage. Jesus is the Messiah, the wounded healer, for every part of the globe and for every part of society. He goes wherever brokenness goes. And brokenness goes everywhere. But I think brokenness has become sort of some sort of Christian cliche. If you've been around the church for a while, you grew up there, or maybe you're just kind of visiting for a while, um, or you're visiting things like RUF, you're going to hear brokenness about a trillion times. In fact, in this sermon, in this time together, this talk, I'm going to say brokenness probably like a hundred times, so you're going to have to get used to it. But let me, let me try to reclaim this word because I think it's overused and underappreciated. Okay? In order to get what the word broken means and its full force and its full value, we need to work backwards and study the word that it refers to. Broken refers to a word called whole. W-H-O-L-E. 
whole. Okay? Broken is the negative word that takes its strength from a positive word, whole. Brokenness is therefore just the absence of wholeness. Just like evil is the absence of good, or sin is the absence of justice. Are we getting this? This is complicated, so I'm going to give you an analogy. It's like a donut. Okay? Watch me. Here I go. We talked about first class and coach, and now we're talking about donuts. What's he talking about? Um, anyway, like, look, it's like a donut. The empty space in the middle of a donut gets its shape and its form from the doughy part. Just like brokenness gets its shape and its form from wholeness. Do you get that? It's defined by what it's not. Here's my point. This is why I'm going to this long digression that includes donuts. To understand brokenness, okay, what the Bible calls sin and its effects, we have to understand wholeness, what the Bible calls shalom and its effects. Let me offer this definition of wholeness, what shalom means in the Bible. It's from a guy named Cornelius Plantinga. He's a theologian or writer. He says it this way. It's beautiful, by the way. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind. It means far more than a ceasefire between warring parties. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires a joyful wonder. In other words, shalom is the way things are supposed to be. Do you get that? It's the way that things are supposed to be. And so by this beautiful definition of peace and wholeness that is salvation, that is shalom, we can better understand sin and its effects. Again, Plantinga gives us a great definition. Sin is the vandalism, it's the violation, it's the spoiling, it's the disturbing of shalom. You see, sin is anything that we do or think or feel that is shalom-breaking. Sin is our physical, moral, or spiritual interference with the way that things are supposed to be. Do you get that? That's kind of what we're after here. And so sin's effect, that's brokenness, is best described as disruption of creation's harmony. And then the resistance to the divine restoration project to reinstate harmony in the world. Okay? Let me get it back down to earth. That's very abstract. That back down to earth. Brokenness is broader than what's inside of us. Okay? Brokenness is broader than even what's wrong with our relationships. It refers to a spoiled universe, like, like milk left out too long. A disharmony that includes personal things. And so sin's effect, brokenness, is referring to not just us, but the world around us. And if we trace our desires, our longings, and our thirsts, they match the Jesus, this description of the Bible from Plantinga. Okay? Think about it this way. We're not just personally thirsty. We're not just feeling let down a lot of the time. We also face things like hurricanes and drought and things that are natural disasters. And in the face of that, we have to realize that we're not just thirsty, but creation, the universe, is thirsty. 
we don't just need a savior, a messiah, a rescuer. The universe, creation, needs a savior, a rescuer, a messiah. Jesus, the promised Messiah, will usher in shalom, shalom, the cosmic peace, the cosmic justice that we all need. He will fix what's broken in the universe and heal each and every person's wounds. Again, listen to the way Daniel puts it. Again, it's really important. Above all, God will preside in unspeakable beauty for which human beings long. And in the mystery of his holiness, he will draw humans to worship like magnets. 